0: Turn with me now, if you would, uh, to the book of Judges. We are in an ongoing series in this book. Uh, If you're new here to Hope, that's what we do. We go through whole books of the Bible. Uh, We may take a Sunday or two at the end of the month to recognize Advent, uh, but uh, typically that's what we do. We go through whole books of the Bible so you don't hear what I want to tell you, but you hear what the Lord wants to tell all of us. We're in Judges 15, that's if you're using the Blue Church Bibles, page 272. This chapter, these events are so strange and so seemingly incredible that you can actually lose sight of the purpose of these events. Uh, you do need to remember this as we read through the passage. In Judges 13, there was a Christophany. That is an appearance Uh, If you remember, of the pre incarnate Jesus Christ. And he'd come to the future parents of a man named Samson and announced to them this purpose that the birth of your son, the birth of your son, Samson, verse 5, shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. That was the promise. The Philistines along with all of the nations that uh, had still been left in the land, were actually teaching God's people. Everything was backwards. Uh, The nations were, in a sense, catechizing Israel uh, in all sorts of abominable teachings. The Canaanite tribes were oppressors, and they had conquered Israel and then turned them into slaves and captives. There was a sort of uh, reversal of what was supposed to happen in redemptive history. God had freed his people from, uh, from slavery, and now the people had willingly allowed themselves to be enslaved. And the Canaanites, in this case the Philistines, were extremely cruel. And uh, uh, the um, they, uh, Israelites actually, over time, capitulated to the Philistines, becoming like them even willingly being under their leadership. They peacefully coexisted with the Philistines. They submitted to them in all things, their law. They did business with them. They entered alliances. We might even say covenants with the Philistines. They intermarried with the Philistines, and they worshiped the Canaanite gods with them. Now, there have been people who believe um, that we are holier, Perhaps more moral than God, and have said, "This is horrible. What's what, what they read in this chapter? It's horrible that God asks Israel to remove these people from the land." And uh, I get that. I think we all should understand that. We should all get it. This is what we're about to see over the next couple of chapters. is ugly. But what is forgotten is that these nations, these unbelievers, have been shaking their fist at God for hundreds of years, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness for hundreds of years, formulating other gods to worship for hundreds of years, and have been uh, oppressing God's people for hundreds of years. Now, like Rahab, they could turn to the Lord if they had wanted to at any time. So this is Israel's singular task, You read of this task given to them in Deuteronomy. It's repeated, uh, certainly in Exodus. You know it when it is given to the people in the day of Joshua. And that is that, that, that someone must lead the people, must deliver the people out from under the boot of the Philistines. So that Samson, as a judge, as a deliverer, this one man, is supposed to do for God's people what God's people had refused to do themselves for hundreds of years. Drive out the Philistines. Drive out the Philistines. Instead, as our chapter begins, Samson is going to the house of a Philistine not to make war, but to make love. Here we pick it up, the the action here in Judges 15. Here now the reading of God's word. After some days at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. And he said, I will go in to my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her. So I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, this time I shall be Innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches, and he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And then he had set fire to the torches. He let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain, as well as the olive orchards. Then the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they said, Samson the son-in-law of the Timnite because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion and the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire and Samson said to them if this is what you do I swear I will be avenged on you and after that I will quit and he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock at Edom Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? They said, We have come up to bind Samson, to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is it this that you do You have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. And they said to him, We have come down to bind you, that we may give you into the hand of the Philistines. And Sanson said to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arm became as flax. That has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands, and he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, and put out his hand, and took it, and with it struck one thousand men. And Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey have I struck down a thousand men. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramath Lehi. And he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall he now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned and he revived. Therefore the name of it was called Anhekore. It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines, 20 years. This is the word of the Lord. Lord God, give us your wisdom uh, from your word. Help us to recognize it is your eternal word that is, it was, is without error. And so, Lord, uh, make it move into our hearts so that we too are shaped by your inerrant word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, we're going to look at uh, four aspects to the story, perhaps four, four takeaways as we move through the passage and look at Samson. We're going to look at what it's like to fall asleep to sin. Uh, we're going to look at the Lord's command upon us to put sin to death. And then we're going to look at this sinner's prayer, maybe not the one you're thinking of, But Samson, as he cries out to the Lord and prays to the Lord, what his prayer is like. And then finally, a sinner's peace, that you and I as sinners can still have peace. So asleep to sin, putting sin to death, the sinner's prayer and the sinner's peace. So let's look at this idea of uh, being asleep to sin and what that does to the human heart. Uh, Our chapter opens with a knock at the door at the house of the beautiful Miss Timnath. And um, she is the, you know, the knockout Philistine girl that Samson had seen and told his parents with his eyes, get her for me, she's mine. And when the door is opened, um, imagine this, there stands Samson in lieu of flowers with a young goat. Now, I know this is kind of hard to imagine, ladies, but... um, A guy showing up at your door with a young goat in the ancient Near East just screamed, I'm in the mood for love. Seriously, this would be like a guy in a tuxedo with two dozen roses and a ring in his pocket. It just smells a little different. You just have to use your imagination. Anyway, Samson has already, remember, been betrayed by his wife. Uh, But he doesn't seem to hold any grudges against her, at least not for too long. Or maybe simply with Samson, this is typical of him, his lust is actually greater than his anger. Uh, And uh, perhaps his anger was taken away because he took it all out on the 30 Philistines at the end of chapter four when he killed them. So he tells his his wife's father, it's finally time to consummate this marriage and make up in the bedroom. But the problem is, after Samson killed those 30 Philistines, his father-in-law married his daughter off to Samson's best man, who was also a Philistine. Now remember, Samson should have nothing to do with Philistines. He shouldn't marry a Philistine. He shouldn't have a best friend. He shouldn't have a best man who's a Philistine. But that's the kind of guy Samson is. So the father, a Philistine, marries his Philistine daughter off to his best man, the Philistine. And we're supposed to shake our, hands, our heads at this because if you hang out with the Philistines, you end up ultimately behaving like a Philistine. You hang out with the Philistines, you start to get the ethics of a Philistine. You get their a compromised morality, their compromised logic. The text is clear about Samson's compromised logic. After Samson burns down their crop and their barns, it's a It's a tit for tat morality that goes on here, and it's a remarkable act of cowardice by the way. The Philistines don't attack the attacker and burn Samson, but instead they burn his wife and his father in law and remember, Samson's wife had chosen to be loyal to her philistine countrymen by being uh by by telling the joke, remember under the threat of of being burned alive if she didn't do that. So what happens when she does give them the correct answer to Samson's uh, joke? They burn her alive anyway. They burn her alive anyway, she and her father. So in verse 10, the Philistines come against Judah to do to Samson as he did to us. It's this retributive justice, this tit-for-tat morality. But then notice in verse 11 that Samson adopts the same Canaanite logic. As they did to me, so I have done to them. And as we said last week, the irony throughout Samson's life is actually the extent of his weakness. He is a very weak man. He's an extremely weak man. He is morally weak. He never rises above the Philistine morality. And it's not just that Samson has fallen asleep on his true calling to get rid of the Canaanites completely and to just do this sort of nanny-nanny, tit-for-tat morality thing. It's worse than that. Because all Israel, all the men of Judah, they rebuke Samson for even doing as little as he does. They didn't even want him to do that, uh, to, to just get the Philistines back for what they'd done. Notice at verse 11, They have an army of 3,000 men. But down at verse 15, there's only 1,000 Philistines at this point. But they tell Samson, those 1,000 rule over us, 3,000. What are you doing? Don't fight back. Leave it alone. Let them continue to rule over us. Let them continue to oppress us. Let it just lie there. Let it be. Now, here's the point. You fall asleep on sin, and sin will master you. When you fall asleep on sin, sin will have its way with you. Sin will master you. I've had a number of friends and counselees uh, over over the years who have been in AA. And it's interesting that that folks in, in Alcoholics Anonymous have tripped over a biblical truth They'll get. They'll, they'll tell you that it's not only the alcoholic, but the whole family of the alcoholic that gets absolutely comfortable with their sin and their sickness. Some of you have been in families where that where there is addiction. Uh, one person's addiction can take over the whole family, and uh, uh, it, it's it's a very strange thing because you try to deliver this person and and, and you out of this bondage to their addiction. And you perhaps even meet with the whole family, and the family starts to put, push back on you. They want to hold on to their old equilibrium because it's what they know. It's what they're comfortable with. They don't want change. So that the family often doesn't want the alcoholic to get sober. They don't want the family to get better. They begin to like their self-pity. It becomes a part of who they are. They like the excuse that it gives them for a lack of transparency with others for a lack of love that they show to others, for a lack of intimacy that they give to others in friendships. And they like feeling even like martyrs. They like it. If somebody comes in to try to save them, they'll say, what are you doing to us? Just leave us alone. So no temptation isn't common to man. Let me ask you this this morning. What sins of yours have you come to like and be comfortable with? There's a bunch of sins that we, perhaps when you became a Christian, knew immediately, I can't do that anymore. And you found yourself not tempted by them anymore. But typically there's one or two that we we have continue to become comfortable with. We wouldn't like it if somebody took them away. This summer, everyone was talking about a guy named Josh Harris the writer, the speaker, pastor, who wrote I Kiss Dating Goodbye many years ago. And they're talking about him because he announced not only his divorce from his wife, but his disavowal of all those books that he had written, and that he is no longer a Christian. And some are blaming it on fame that he had at a young age, or the charismatic movement that he was a part of and how it influenced him, or the, the purity culture that he promoted that was a bit more law than gospel, A lack of seminary education, or that he was given too much responsibility at too young of an age, or all of the above. Or none of the above. People are shaped by thousands of decisions and for hundreds of reasons. What we can say is that you must not fall asleep on God's truth and his call upon you in enduring each of those decisions. It's so easy to fall off the path because one wrong decision leads to another wrong decision, which leads to another wrong decision, and soon you're way over here and you cannot see your way back onto the path. Do not fall asleep on sin. If you can name those one or two sins that you still struggle with, does anybody else know about them? Does anybody else pray for you? Does anybody you know, ask you good questions about how you're doing with those one or two things such that you stay on the path, such that we, the body of Christ is working together. It takes us to our second point, putting sin to death. When sin is left unaddressed, it always expands. It's like the weeds in my yard. Leave them unaddressed and they just keep going. And it always escalates. It never stays contained. Notice that the 300 foxes here is a numerical escalation from last week, because last week, remember, there were the 30 suits of clothes on the line in this riddle that Samson had with the Philistines. Well, this week it ex- escalates to 300 foxes. You're supposed to see those numbers grow. And here we have a, a, a we, we have uh, in, in my backyard a, a fox that's often uh, wants to creep into our yard. When my son was a a young boy, he actually went out back to to chase the fox. No surprise, foxes don't want to get caught, and they run. And uh, if you notice that foxes, almost like sin, they they can't be caught. You you chase and you chase and you chase. So the image here now of Samson chasing after these foxes, some people think they were jackals, I, I think we're supposed to laugh at this. Because this takes some time. You can't catch 300 foxes in an hour. And then he's going to take them two by two. This is a a plan that only the three stooges and Samson would come up with. You're going to take them two by two, and you're going to tie their tails together. And you're going to tie the tails together around a torch in the middle, and then release them in pairs into a wheat field in the grain stores and in the vineyards and through the olive groves of the Philistines. Now, it sounds funny, but this is a full-scale attack on the economy of the Philistines. This is a uh, full-scale attack on the Philistines. Suddenly, Samson's comic revenge turns deadly serious. Burning the standing grain, the fields of wheat, destroys the food that's on the way, the harvest that, that, that they hope will come in. The food before it's harvested. Burning the stacked grain, that's, that's lighting a candle, if you will, to the barns. It destroys the storehouses that will get them through the winter. And destroying the olive groves means um, no oil for cooking and for frying. All I can tell you is if you ever visit the Middle East and you eat the food there, you only want it fried. <laughs> so to burn, you know, to get to get to destroy the olive groves means no oil, no frying, no taste, no flavor, no food. Because pressed oil is a huge part of their diet, and because there's no there's no shop right in the Middle East, there's no Stop and Shop, there's no Wegmans in the Middle East. You ate what you grew. This is a deadly act. This is a deadly act. An act that would create a slow death for the Philistines. Again, this is retributive for Samson. They ruined his fertility with his wife. So his motivation is to ruin the fertility of the fields and the vineyards and the fruit of their farms for years to come. And if there is no life, there's no fertility for for the people of God or the the people of the Philistines. So for Samson, this is just tit for tat. But, but, by God's hand, this merely retributive justice is actually going to accomplish. Don't miss this. It's actually going to accomplish what God intends. To put death to death. What Samson does will ultimately be deadly. No food, no life. But not only that, by doing this, Samson's also destroying what the Philistines would have offered to their idols. It was the practice of the Philistines to offer up to their god Dagon, um, and Baal, the first fruits of their crops. That's how they stayed right with their gods, by by burning uh, and offering up to the gods the first fruits. But by burning up all their fields, there would be no first fruits. Therefore, there would be no worship of false gods in the land. In a sense, Samson gives the one true God, Jehovah, the first fruits of the promised land as a burnt offering, that the Philistines should have had, that Judah should have. Don't miss the amazing irony. Samson's mayhem, Samson's total destruction, what he means for evil, God uses for good. So that when the Philistines burn Samson's father-in-law, when the Philistines burn alive Samson's wife, as evil as that is, You now have evil Philistines killing evil Philistines. Israel never accomplished that. But the Lord sets all of this in motion. He does what the people of God will not do and cannot accomplish. He's going to put sin to death. He's going to put sin to death. Not Samson, not Samson at all. Remember verse 7 and 8. Samson is hiding. He's hiding. Samson then, he's, he's had enough. Um, he's satisfied his own very limited retributive justice that's all about Samson. He wants nothing more to do with the Philistines. He's satisfied to let them to continue to oppress God's people. He's uh, satisfied to let them to continue to enslave God's people. He's ha- just fine with them murdering God's people and raping Israel and their land but raping their women and killing Israelites, he's staying in the cleft of the rock. He's fine. I'm okay. But what is God's purpose for Samson? What is God's purpose for Samson? God's goal is that Samson, remember, Samson remember deliver all Israel from all the Philistines. That's God's goal for him as, as he was called to be a Nazarene. Now, it's true you never hear Samson do this, but let's do some accounting from God's perspective in the passage. What has Samson lost so far? What does his side, what does Samson's side of the ledger look like at this point? So far, all that Samson's been deprived of is a pagan wife with whom he never should have tied the knot in the first place. He never consummated a marriage with a woman he never should have married in the first place. In other words... On Samson's side of the ledger is no loss at all. He really didn't lose anything. He was protected from things. But what does the ledger say on the side of the Philistines? So far they lost 30 men in Ashkelon. That was back in chapter 14, verse 19. Then they lost all their crops around Timnah. And then according to chapter 15, verse 8, they lost all their men at Timnah. When Samson slays them hip and thigh, it means that they were... The bodies were piled up. So then in spite of the fact that Samson wants nothing more to do with the Philistines and the Israelite men want nothing more to do with the Philistines, the scoreboard shows that Samson has done by the Lord's hand all that he's supposed to do. Now I know some of you in in, in a room like this would be unusual if there were not. Some of you in this room say, this is what I hate about Christianity. This is exactly what I hate about the Bible—blood and guts and this military stuff. This is so violent. I believe in a God of love, but I—I I, I need to ask you to stop for a minute. Stop and think for a moment. Listen to the passage for a moment. Tim Keller points out that in the Old Testament, the saviors always heap up the bodies. They saviors in the Bible always heap up. They fill the earth with bodies. In Psalm 110, which we read for you earlier, which is a psalm that is quoted in the New Testament almost more than any other psalm, it's a messianic psalm. And a psalm that's talking about Jesus, the Messiah. It talks about the Messiah who is to come. It says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In other words, Messiah, the second person of the Trinity, sits at the Father's right hand. And he will crush the kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations. He will heap up dead bodies, hip and thigh. He will put enemies under his feet. And think of, maybe think of the most beautiful chapter in the entire Bible, Ephesians 1. It's one of the the loftiest, most glorious chapters in all of Scripture. Paul, looking back at what the greater Samson has done, then says, God has raised him up and put everything under his feet, and he's seated at the right hand. Well, when did God the Father raise God the Son up? When Jesus put death to death on the cross. When Jesus put sin to death on the cross and he ascended, God raised him. Friends, the sin that we spoke of before, that that sin to which many of us fall asleep to, those sins that lull you into acceptance, are you ready to put them to death? The church is always called the sanctification. Are you ready? Willing to put sin to death. One of the words that the, the Puritans use, John Owen would, would often use is the word mortification. Are you willing to put sin to death in your life? Those sins that you're aware of, that, 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 that you know of. All of us, see, we're supposed to see ourselves here. All of us are Samsons. We think we're pretty strong morally. We think of ourselves as pretty competent. We think of ourselves as not as bad as other people. But when it comes to our favorite sins, maybe at this time of year, maybe we've recognized we're gluttonous. Maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's greed. We're relaxing in the cleft of the rock of our own lives, and we like it there. And typically, wherever that cleft of the rock is these days, you've got your phone with you so you can bring all that sin with you and have it whenever you need it. What is the sin that we hold on to that we're not putting to death? That won't work. Jesus died so that you died. Jesus died for all your sin. He put sin and death to death, and he did not let up until three days later when it was all over and the the bodies were, were piled high. Sin and death, you see. So that we're now supposed to die to self. We put sin to death. We mortify sin. Like Samson in this sense, the spirit is moving upon us to put sin to death, hip and thigh and pile it high every day. There should be one small way that you're recognizing I'm trying to do this. Where you you back you you hack away at your sin. So so where are you doing that? Where are you chipping off? Were you chipping away at the sin in your life? Thirdly, the sinner's prayer. Samson is ultimately found by the men of Judah, and he allows them to tie him up and basically drop him like a bomb in the midst of the Philistines. And in verse 15, he again breaks his Nazarite vow because he picks up once again a piece of a dead animal. Of course, we had him tearing uh, open the lion last week and and reaching in to scoop into the carcass of a dead animal, breaking his Nazarite bow. Well, now he's picking up the, uh, the jawbone of the ass, and uh, specifically a jawbone that would still have teeth. And he starts slaying the Philistines, think about it, with a, with a weapon that smiles at them as he kills them. Right? It's a firearm that grin, grins at the, at the Philistines as they're slain. What a gruesome event this would have been. Uh, Samson outshamgars Shamgar. Samson does the one job that Israel should have done and wouldn't do, and he finally begins to do what was prophesied about him. And he's used by God to do it. More than this, this is the first time, the very first time we explicitly read of Samson seeking the Lord, seeking Yahweh, you, in Hebrew it's emphatic, you have given this great salvation by the hand of your servant. Think about this. This is the first time too that Samson is lowly. Samson describes himself now as a servant. He's needy. He's a needy servant. And he says, now am I going to die because of thirst and fall into the uncircumcised hands? Rescue me, he says. I'm your servant. Here is Samson for the first time dependent on God. Here is the Savior confessing that he needs saving. He's praying, he's asking for help. We've repeatedly heard that Samson's power is not his own but comes from God's Spirit. But now Samson finally acknowledges it himself. He admits that he's anything but self sufficient. He's dying because of the lack of something to God easily provides every single day water. He praises the God of living waters. God does for Samson what he did for all Israel in Exodus 17. And in Numbers 20, he's bringing water out from the rock. All because Samson prays. Verse 18, he called upon the Lord. Now I know that there are people among us today who are in trouble. You're not at peace. You've had bad medical news. Maybe you are being bullied. Maybe you have bills that you can't pay. Maybe you are out of work. Maybe you want to be married and you're not. Maybe you're married and you wish you weren't. Listen. Listen for a moment. Have you turned to the one who has the power to make the mountains and the seas? Are you trying to do all that in your own strength, or have 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 you reached out to the Lord? Have you said to God, I thirst, I need, I've got to have, and gone to the one who can give it to you? Think about this. If Jesus prayed, if Jesus, the greater Samson, had to cry out to God and say, I thirst, how much more do we when we thirst? And yet so many of us are trusting in ourselves, making the Lord the one that we go to as 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 a place of last resort. Or we even think, God can't be bothered. I have this one. Pray without ceasing. Meet with the Lord multiple times a day. That is your birthright by the new birth to come to him often, to the the table, to the throne of grace. With freedom, with confidence, do it. Pray to him. And finally, the sinner's peace. Look who is involved with God's people and look at what they're doing here in the passage look at the father. What is he up to? One of uh, my fellow pastors uh, likes to say that the the Lord in scripture loves to laugh, and he sure does here. Remember Psalm uh, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst the bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Here is Samson wrapped up with the cords being dropped into the middle of the Philistines. And the Lord laughs as the spirit moves upon them. And Samson breaks the bonds and a bomb goes off in the middle of of, of the Philistines. The Lord makes a joke out of evil when the last thing a Philistine sees on the earth is the braying, laughing face of a dead jackass. It's a joke, and we should not miss it. Because everything that you do see in this life, in this world that that is evil, the Lord sees it. He does know it. He will judge it. He's in control. It does not get the last word. He does. And what is the Spirit doing? What is the Spirit doing? The Spirit pours out power. Verse 14, the Spirit rushes upon Samson to give him strength, and it's the same Holy Spirit, the very same Spirit that who, who rushed upon Samson, who is the one who gives you the power to break the bonds of indwelling sin. I've asked you, what is your sin? I've asked you, what is your indwelling sin? I've asked you, what are your favorite sins? I've asked you now to put that sin to death, but you don't do it on you have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Have you prayed when you prayed? Have you prayed to the Holy Spirit to, to for the Spirit to break the bonds of the indwelling sin by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit? You see? This is like the, the Romans 7 kind of tension. You see the very things that you don't want to do, you continue to do. Have you gone to God and said, show me how there's no condemnation for me. I ask you, indwelling Holy Spirit, give me the power to push back, as the Catechism says, to enable me more and more to live under Christ and to righteousness. Have you asked? Are you asking the Spirit to do that? Because God laughs at Satan, laughs at sin and death, and the Spirit gives you the power to know that victory, to overcome the enemies of the world, the flesh and the devil. And if you think the Spirit can't work with you, look. Look here. Here the Spirit uses a man who's breaking God's law, breaking his vow to God over and over and over again. There's a reason why God chose Samson who broke every one of his Nazarite vows. So that you and I would see that none of us is beyond the pale for the Lord to work in our lives no matter what's happened to you, no matter what you've done in the past, no matter how stain-covered you think you are, no matter how bad you think you are. And by the way, for those of us who think you're pretty good, no matter how prideful you think you are, when you're brought low, God can use you. God can change you. Don't miss the point. If God can use a spiritual weakling like Samson, who prefers to hide in a cave, he can probably use you too. And then what of Jesus? Well, we've already uh, called Jesus the greater Samson. So in Samson, we have a lesser Jesus. Look at how Samson points to Christ. Here we have, isn't it interesting, Jews and Gentiles allied with each other for the purpose of doing away with God's anointed. Here, here, here are Samson's fellow Jews. They're tying him up. They don't want to kill him. They, in fact, they promised not to kill him, but they delivered him over to the Philistines. So together, they're working together to plot Samson's death. I hope that sounds familiar. Here in micro, in Timnah, Jews, Gentiles, a picture of all of humanity is uniting to kill the deliverer of God's people. They together bind him up and do away with the bridegroom who simply came to love on this day, to love his wife. And maybe that explains the goat that he brought as well. And yet, just like Samson willingly, intentionally allows himself to be bound and carried by a huge horde of his own people and handed over to the Gentiles to be executed on behalf of his people, This foreshadows the greater Nazarite who does the same to save all of them, Jew and Gentile together. Of course there's one difference, and it's a big one. Jesus, likewise, could have torn the ropes, broken the bonds, snapped the the nails, called upon legions of angels to cover the earth with piles of our bodies, of sinners like us, love some of our sin. Piled this world, hip and thigh, destroyed all of the sinners that had put him to death on the cross, including each one of us in this room. But he did not do it. Jesus was not not on a mission of destruction, but he was on a mission of grace, and that grace is yours whenever you say, Jesus, I'm yours. So what I'm asking you today is, have you, have you made yourself the Lord's by simply offering yourself up to him as a living sacrifice? Have you done that yet? What held Jesus in his bonds wasn't the bonds, but his deep, deep love of you. So embrace that love given to you today. Let's pray. For God, we thank you for the gospel, the good news, that the bonds that hold us down, our own hearts, our own sin, yes, the world, yes, the devil, but the flesh as well, Lord, that those bonds can be broken, that we don't have to live in slavery to sin anymore because a deliverer has been given. A son has been born, a son has been given. That at Christmas time we can recognize in the, the God-man Jesus, born in such a way, dropped in the middle of sinful humanity. May his love go off like a love bomb, Lord, such that all of us are are changed by it. And instead of dying because of it, we simply die to self and are made alive to Christ. Lord, do that in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. What I'd...